Good morning, Crossway. Uh, scripture reading this morning will be in Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. May God bless the reading of his word. What an honor it is to open God's word with you this morning. I'll be honest, this is something that I never saw happening when me and Hillary Jane came here uh, six years ago. A lot of things have changed since Mark and Jeremy forced me to preach that one Sunday night in August of 2018. So all that just to say thank you, and thank you for the opportunity. <clears throat> if you haven't already... If you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, that will be our sermon text this morning. This part of this letter is the hinge point of this book. The work in theology of Hebrews is mainly finished. He moves on to more practical things. The author has just gone for 10 chapters looking at Jesus' superiority, his priestly ministry, his final sacrifice, and so much of the Old Testament types and shadows finding their fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. So this morning, we're in chapter 10, 19 to 25. In this text, we'll find three practices that we can do to have confidence and endure until Christ returns. But before we get to those three practices, those three imperatives, the things we must do, I must first give you the why or the how. This is the New Testament formula for giving us commands. God always shows us who we are in Christ before telling us how we are to act. God gives us theology before he gives us application. This is the fundamental logic of Scripture. And it would be really easy for me to come up here and just tell you a bunch of things that you need to do, things you need to do better. Maybe you need to come to small group or maybe evening service, this, that. But that doesn't address your heart, and God knows that. That's why he writes his books the way that he does. It's so essential to your growth as a Christian that you understand that every time there is an imperative in the Bible, it is rooted and grounded in what is called an indicative. It's rooted in facts. 
And you will never make true progress as a Christian if you divorce these two things. You have to keep the fat, together the fact of who you are in Christ and who Christ is and what Christ has done on the cross to whatever the Bible is trying to tell you to do. There's lots of religions that tell you to do better, but Christianity is not like that. Christianity isn't just a bunch of commands. Christianity is grounded in the reality of who God is to us in Christ. And this section of scripture is proof of that. And I'm excited to unpack it with you this morning. But before I do that, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this great day that we can worship you. Lord, I pray that we don't take these opportunities for granted. Thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that you would use me this morning as a vessel of honorable use. I pray that your text come alive this morning and that by the work of your spirit, you would penetrate our hearts. And because of what you have already done, that it will change what we believe if it needs to change and it will change what we do. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We all know the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, who always has been, always is, and always will be, created everything. Day and night, land and sea, sun and moon, things that swim, things that run, things that fly. God created our amazing universe with the word. He created everything. Not out of necessity, God needed nothing. He had and has everything perfectly within himself. The beauty and power and goodness of our invisible God was now visible. And out of all the things that he created, God made something special. On day six, God created man. And man was special because God made him in his own image. He was a living, breathing picture of God. A mirror to show the world what he was like. A mirror to reflect his glory. From the dust, God created Adam, and then from Adam's rib, he created Eve. They were both made in his image, and they were perfect. They were told to have dominion over the earth and to be fruitful and multiply so that they could spread God's image, so they could show God's goodness, his greatness all over the globe. And things were off to an amazing start. That is until the ones that he created in his image rebelled and sinned against him. And they tried to cover their sin. And because they sinned, God kicked them out of Eden. They lost their fellowship with God. They lost their access to the one nothing else compares to. Have you ever thought of the emotions and thoughts going through Adam and Eve's mind as they walked away from heaven on earth? Imagine turning around and seeing that cherubim with the flaming sword reminding you that you can't go back. The regret, the sorrow, the blaming each other. Their lives and their children's lives would never be the same. All image bearers were now sinners and separated from the holy God. And this is the picture that we see all throughout the Old Testament. Sinners on the outside of God's presence, outside of the holy place. But still, God made a way to be with his people. He made a way for the priests of Israel to enter the holy place to temporarily access God. 
These priests had to work all day long, sun up to sundown, slaughtering and sacrificing animals to temporarily atone for sin. It's estimated that at Passover week, as many as 300,000 lambs would be slain. 300,000. There was so much blood that they prepared channels from, for the blood to run out of the temple and into the river. It made it look like it was running with blood. But here's the thing. No matter how many sacrifices were made, no matter how many animals were slain, no matter how much blood flowed into that river, they ultimately failed. They couldn't remove sin. And they couldn't fully bring access to God. All these old ceremonies and sacrifices they continually had to perform year after year could never truly clean them. But now, here in Hebrews 10, 19, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, Wait, what happened? We can enter the holy place. But not only enter, we can go in with confidence. What happened? Romans 3 says there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 8, 7, the carnal mind is at enmity with God. Ephesians 2, for you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Colossians 1, 21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. How did you get from that? How does man get from exiled from Eden to back communing with the holy God? How do you get from being doomed for your sin to now having access to the holy God? Well, it says, by the blood of Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the firstborn of all creation, the only perfect man the light of the world, the image of the invisible God, the eternal God of life, died. And it's by his blood that we have confidence to enter into the holy place. What amazing grace. God, who didn't have to save anyone, allowed his creation to put him to death on a cross. The worst way to die. And even worse than that, he took the wrath of the Father that was supposed to be poured out on us so that we could be saved, so that we could, number one, access the Father. Imagine trying to call the Queen of England or maybe the President of the United States. Could anyone here call him? Is anyone, does anyone have him in your favorites on your phone? No. You don't have access. But what if you were his kid? His number wouldn't be president in your phone. It would be dad. Jesus shed his blood so that we could call our heavenly father anytime that we want. If you've been adopted by God, you have 24-7 access. God doesn't send you to voicemail. And this is why the Roman Catholic faith is so wrong. Well, one of the reasons. Not only is it a works-based salvation, but you can't even pray to God directly. You have to pray to his mom. You have to pray to Saint so-and-so for whatever reason. I looked up some saints for you guys. Is anyone here lonely? You can, play, you can pray to Saint Rita. Does anyone here have relationship problems? 
St. Valentine is your guy. If you have bad luck, you can pray to St. Christopher. If you're in desperation, you can call St. Jude. No. If you are a follower of Christ, you have direct access to God by the blood of Jesus. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. If I'm lonely or desperate or having any type of problem, I'm not going to go to some dead person who won't even hear me. I'm coming before the throne of grace with confidence. I'm talking to my father who is alive and listening. You can keep your coins and candles. I have the blood of Jesus. And I have access. Verse 20 says that we have this access by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. It's a new way because it's in contrast with the old way. And it's a living way because none of those animals resurrected from the grave. After the blood of the sheep and bulls and goats was spilled, they lost their life. And they were burned. It was over for those animals. But this new and living way that we have is because of the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. And though he died, he rose three days later. And he is alive right now. Easter is every day for the Christian. There's no more need to sacrifice animals on the altar because the Son of God came down from heaven to lay himself on the altar for us. This is the first privilege that we have as believers. We have access. Verse 21 shows us our second privilege. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus not only opened the way to God, but he is now our great priest over the house of God. He does not merely show the way to God or even just provide the way to God. He takes us with him to God and ministers for us in heaven. So not only do we have access, we have an advocate in Jesus. He is our defender, our lawyer, our bigger in harmon. We have an advocate before the Father's right hand. He pleads for you every hour of every day. While you're here sitting, this, sitting here this morning, Christian, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, pleads your case before the Father. And when you sin, oh, and you do sin, he doesn't bring a weak case. He doesn't say, oh, well, he, he just didn't mean to do that. Or she just had a little slip up. No, he says, I died for him. I died for her. And on that basis, wipe it clean. Forgive them. And the father agrees because he is in complete agreement with Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees a sinner saved by grace. There's no transgressions next to your name anymore. Your name sits in the book of life. And instead of a list of sins next to it, even though you've committed millions of sins, it says righteous. Not because you are, but because Jesus was and is for you. And he died for you. And that has been credited to you now. So now when God looks at you, he sees no sin. He looks at you and says, you are righteous because of the blood of my son. Jesus is our advocate. This is our reality 
as believers in Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to make intercession for you, Christian. We have access and we have an advocate in Jesus, by the blood of Jesus. That is the indicative. Those are the facts. So now, what do we do in light of these two amazing realities? What do we do in light of this gospel privilege? What God says and what the gospel is gives us the ability and energy to do the commands that he's about to give us. The foundation of what we do is rooted in who God is to us in Christ. What we do is rooted in what he has done. So these things are true. Now what? How should we live now as people with access and an advocate in Jesus? We could apply this to many things in life. Your marriage, your dating, your parenting, evangelism, what you watch with your eyes, what you say with your mouth, how you spend your money. All of these would be biblical implications. But those aren't the ones the author of Hebrews sees as most necessary. He gives us three commands, or three practices that are all rooted in the theology found in verses 19 to 21. And the first one is, let us draw near. Verse 22 says, let us draw near. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, God put a cherubim blocking the way, blocking the doorway. And in the temple, the veil blocking man from the Holy of Holies pictured cherubim. But when Jesus died, it opened. Matthew 27, 50 and 51 say that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The veil is torn open, so come commune with your God. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, once said, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom so that big sinners like me might fit in. This section right before this one talks about how Jesus is the one final and sufficient sacrifice. There's no need for the river of blood anymore. There's no need for the hundreds of thousands of lambs to be slain because the Lamb of God was slain and then resurrected. So come to your heavenly Father. You are no longer outcasts. You are adopted into the family of God. And we must not stay away from him. We must run to him in our times of doubt and need. But not just in times of doubt and need. In all seasons of life. When things are good, draw near. Those are the times it's easy to think that we can do it on our own. And the author of Hebrews, he even includes himself in the command here. He, said, he was not doubting the promises of God. But he says, let us draw near. All of us must draw near to God and let nothing keep us from him. Verse 22 says that we are to draw near 
it adds with the assurance, with full assurance of faith. We must remember that our assurance is not based on how we are feeling about Christ on a particular day. But instead, our assurance is based on our knowledge and confidence in who he is. The author bases our assurance not on us, but on the fact of Christ's priesthood. And we can be confident in drawing near only because of this great truth. This full assurance is only possible when we take our eyes off of ourselves in this world and we look to Christ as revealed to us in his word. This full assurance is only possible as we look at his unchanging character. Not only do we draw near with confidence, but we also draw near with hearts clean from evil consciences. This is taken from the sacrificial ceremonies of the Old Covenant. The priests had to continually wash themselves and the sacred vessels and the basins of clear water. And the blood was continually being sprinkled as a sign of cleansing. But all the cleansing, whether water or blood, it was external. Only God can cleanse a man's heart. The Spirit cleanses the innermost thoughts and desires. In Christ, our sins are covered in the blood and our lives are transformed. There must be both. Together, they make up salvation. We must say the first, or we might say the first is positional satisfaction, and the second is practical sanctification. God is satisfied with the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, and sin is removed, and our consciences are free. We are changed on the inside as we are washed by the word and born again. We have such hearts today if we have faith no matter how weak that faith may seem to us. If we have faith in his blood that cleanses our consciences, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience is a beautiful picture of deliverance, already mentioned in Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? The conscience condemns us and reminds us of our guilt. And the guilt cannot be removed until the sin is removed. When Jesus died, his blood removed our sin. And when we embrace him by faith, our conscience becomes free from guilt. We are cleansed from an evil conscience. We do not condemn ourselves anymore. The cleansing of our hearts refers to satisfaction of God's justice, atonement of our sin, which is required before we can be acceptable to him. The other part of cleansing, having our bodies washed with pure water, this does not refer to, to baptism. It has to do with our living, with how the Holy Spirit changes our lives. It is the same cleansing mentioned by Paul to Titus in Titus 3.5 where he says the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Or Ephesians 5, 26, the washing of water with the word. These two aspects of cleansing are inseparable. When a man comes to Christ, they both take place. Christ's death 
pays the penalty of our sin for us, and God is satisfied. And the cleansing act of the Holy Spirit begins to change us on the inside, and he is satisfied. God's justice and righteousness are both satisfied. And because of this, a believer can come into God's presence with confidence. So come to him. And he says with a sincere heart. The idea here is genuine, without superficiality, hypocrisy, or ulterior motive. Coming to God with full assurance requires commitment that is genuine. The nation of Judah, for example, like many people, often come to God with anything but a sincere heart. Jeremiah 3.10, Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. But a day was to come when his people would change. Jeremiah 24.7 says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord, and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. Simon the magician in Acts is another good example. Bad example. <laughs> he made a profession of faith in Christ, but his heart was corrupt. He tried to use Christ's name and power for his glory and benefit, and then was harshly rebuked by Peter. In Acts 8, he said, You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. From the earliest days of the old covenant, God demanded a sincere heart. You will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 4.29. The people who find God are those who seek him with their whole heart, with total genuineness for God and not some other thing. We come to God for God. We hear pastors all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, you name it, claiming that if we come to Christ, we'll gain riches, we'll be healed, we won't suffer anymore, everything will go our way. If you come to God for anything but God alone, you have a problem. And whatever you're trying to get out of this, that's probably your God. God is not the means for you to get something. We come to God for God. It's because of people's view, low view of God that we don't realize the greatness of the one that we can now draw near to. Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? Exodus 15, 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. Who is like our God? The one countless angels Sing holy, holy, holy to day and night. The God who makes heaven, heaven. You realize that the reason heaven is amazing 
is not because there's streets of gold or there's mansions or there's angels. It's because of the one who is there on the throne. Samuel Rutherford, Scottish Presbyterian pastor and theologian said, Oh my Lord Jesus Christ, if I could be in heaven without thee, it would be hell. And if I could be in hell and still have thee, it would be heaven to me. For thou art all the heaven I want. God has given us access, and he wants us to draw near to him. Now, how do we do that? By worshiping him, praying to him, reading his word, singing praises to him, and by coming together with his people. Number two, let us hold fast. Verse 23 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our second command is to hold fast of this confession of hope. What is that? We are to hold on to Christ and what he's done for us. Christ, our hope in life and death. He is our hope. A person who genuinely trusts cannot help but be hopeful. A hopeless believer is a contradiction in terms. And so, a person who is genuinely hopeful will hold fast. One who lets go has lost hope. And one who still has hope will still hold on. Continuing is both a mark of faith and of hope. Holding on does not keep us saved any more than our works make us saved, but both are evidence that we are saved. So hold on. Hold on to the one who's actually holding on to you. You can't escape or fall out of his hand. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work on you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So we are to hold fast the confession of our hope, the gospel, without wavering. Why? Why can we trust in that hope? Well, because of the one who promised it. Jesus, the supreme one, the one who holds the universe together by the power of his word, the one who defines truth, the one who took the wrath for you, died, and then rose from the dead. If he promises you anything, you can trust him. If he promises that you can trust him with your soul, you can trust him. If he promises that you'll have eternal life, you will have eternal life. If he promises that all the things in this world, good and bad, will work together for your good, it will work together for your good. There's nothing or no one that you can trust more. There's a story of a young boy whose dad left him at a downtown corner one morning and told him to wait here until he came back, which would be about half an hour. But the father's car broke down, and he couldn't get to a phone. Five hours went by before the father could make his way back. He was worried that his son would be scared. But when the father got there, the boy was standing in front of the store, looking in the window, and singing a song. When the father saw him, he ran up to him and he hugged him and he kissed him. 
the father apologized and said, weren't you scared? Weren't you worried? Did you think I was never going to come back? And the boy looked up and said, no, dad. I knew you were coming. You said you would. Sometimes God's answers seem to be taking a long time. And our waiting may become uncomfortable or even painful. We know there's trials and hardships in this life. Loved ones die. People hate us for loving Jesus. They make fun of us. Finances get tough. Friends fall away from the faith. But Jesus will always do just as he said he will do. And the reason that we can hold fast to our hope without wavering is because he who promised is faithful. Number three, let us consider. Verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you notice that all of these commands started with let us. Verse 22, let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider how to stimulate one another. Christianity is an us thing. Christianity isn't a lone ranger religion. If you're out wandering on your own, you're probably not one of us. How can you say you're a part of the body if you're not part of the body? The only place where we can remain steadfast until he returns is with his people. We need each other. We need to be in fellowship with one another. We need to strengthen and encourage each other. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. How can we push each other to be more like Christ, to live for Christ and do good while we're still here on this earth? How can you pray for the person sitting right in front of you? How can you sit with them as you do now and encourage them to persevere? The author of Hebrews is saying here that you cannot forget to be part of the local body, a local assembly. You need to be part of a church. And I'll take it a step further. You can't just come to youth group or come to good news or small group or whatever little niche you're a part of. You must gather with all the saints. That's where all of these things are happening, drawing near to God, coming before the throne of grace, singing together, hearing the word preached, encouraging one another. And now I understand that mentioning the church to different groups of people can cause all sorts of different reactions. Some might say, well, oh, of course I love the church. Crossway, we know you love the church. <laughs> While others might respond that while they do love Jesus, they just, they don't love the church. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. This church is ordained by God. It is a fellowship of flawed people to carry out his will in the world. We are hypocrites. Hypocrites with access to God and an advocate because of the blood of Jesus. 
We are hypocrites who will be less and less hypocritical because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Hypocrites that love one another and forgive one another because we've been forgiven of so much more than being a hypocrite. When we consider the biblical teaching on the church, we realize that the church is vitally important for growing in Christ. Like a branch that grows because of its connection to the tree, we thrive when we stay connected to the church. Don't be like these people that the writer mentions here. Not forsaking your own assembling together as is the habit of some. We live in the days of the consumer. You don't even need to go to the store anymore to buy stuff. (laughs) You can shop online. It's actually cheaper if you do. We just had Prime Day. We had Black Friday. Nowadays, if you don't want to make food, it used to be we're like, oh, you can go get fast food. And that's, that's good. That's fast. But now you don't even have to do that. You can just order it up on your phone. They bring it to you. And we try. We try to do that with church. We try to do church online. We tried Zoom. (laughs) We try just listening to podcasts or just meeting together with your family. But they are not substitutes for gathering with the saints. Church wasn't created to cater to my convenience. It's not about me. God didn't give you spiritual gifts to be greedy with, to just keep to yourself. And another area is dating. You can show what you want to show, and you can be who you want to be now. That's why we have shows like Catfish, where people pretend to be someone that they're not for years and waste people's time. But here, you can't catfish anyone. You can't just be whoever you want to be. We're here living life together. And that's what makes it sweet. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 says there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, to kill, to heal, to tear down, a time to build, to weep, to laugh, to mourn, to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain refrain from embracing. To search, to give up. To keep, a time to throw away. To tear, to mend, to be silent, to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. And here in the church, we are here for all of them. We are here to do them all together, to the glory of God until he returns. Verse 25 ends by saying, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You cannot forsake the local church. We need each other. We need to walk together all the way home to heaven. Dustin Benj says in his book, The Loveliest Place, the church being the loveliest place. He says, the church is the focused domain where all God's presence, promises, and purposes are unveiled and eternally realized. 
after Adam and Eve sinned, God killed an animal to cover them, and he promised to send a Savior. Well, that Savior came. When Jesus came down from heaven to live and die for us, and instead of us being covered by animals like they did in the Old Testament, we are covered by Jesus. They looked forward to the day that he would come, and now we look back. And today, we look forward to the day that we will return to Eden. God will make all things new. This passage, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25, is a glorious reminder of the access and advocate that we have in Jesus Christ by his blood. He is the new and living way. So let's draw near. Let's hold fast to our confession of hope. And let's encourage each other to be more like Christ in the local church. If you're here this morning and you haven't put your trust in Christ, you're still like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Exiled and an enemy of God. Dead in your sin. And there's nothing that you can do about it on your own. You can't fix this problem by any good works. You can't get right with God like every other religion tries to say. It is only by the blood of Jesus that we can be saved. If you haven't trusted Jesus, this passage isn't for you. You don't have access to our amazing God. You're still on the outside looking in. You don't have an advocate in Jesus. When you sin, Jesus doesn't defend you. You're still on your own. And therefore, you can't draw near. You're not part of the church. You can come every week to Crossway, but if you, are not, if you have not put your faith in Christ, you won't truly be able to fellowship with us. We love you, and you can keep coming, but we would love to see you join the family. But if you don't, you can't hold fast to the hope because there's no hope for you outside of Christ. Spurgeon told a story, and I'll end with this. He said, years ago, one of our students was abnormally thin or weak with what seemed to be tuberculosis. He had heard of a certain medicine that was said to be useful in such cases, but he had no faith in it. When he was growing worse and worse, I said, brother, you are at death's door. Try that man's stuff. There may be something in it. At any rate, nothing else does you good. He took the medicine through sheer despair of all other prescriptions, and God blessed it to him so that he is alive at, a, at this day. Not this day, that day. <laughs> he would have never tried that remedy if he had not felt that there was no other hope. Some of you here today are like that man. You know you're sick. And you know you need this medicine. But you won't take it. You won't come to Jesus. It will be good for you to be driven into a corner like this man was. Some of you won't come unless it's the only thing left for you to do. Well, I'm telling you right now. Brother, sister, you are at death's door. Try that man's stuff. 
so that you may believe in Christ Jesus and say with his disciples, where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. So come to Christ. He is a sweet Savior. He has given us access and he is an advocate. So let's draw near together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for coming down to save us sinners. You could have ended ended everything after we sinned, but you chose to promise to bring a Savior. Lord, we are forever thankful for Jesus coming down to live the perfect life that we couldn't, to die the death that we deserved, and raise from the dead. Lord, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, that they would come to faith today. Bother their conscience so much this morning that they can't help but come to you without leaving. Lord, we love you. We love your church. Um, Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. Um, Thank you for this Lord's Day. Um, And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.